this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 16. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible under a chair near you. You can find that on page 980. Matthew 20, beginning with verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for Daenerys, a day he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, begin them with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a Daenerys. Now when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a Daenerys. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for Daenerys? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I have given to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Would you join me in the pastoral prayer? Father God, as we come to this portion of our services, God, where we enter the time, God, where your, your word has been read and your word is about to be preached, I pray, God, that you be with us. Give us hearts to hear. And, and God, I pray, Lord, um, first and foremost, God, for PBC this morning. God, I pray, God, that you give us a heart of humility. Father, we are so quick to exalt ourselves to exalt others. But Father, as we learned in Sunday school this morning, God, there is only one good, and that is you. So Father, may we be humble in how we treat one another. May we be humble enough to admit that we are sinners in need of a great God. And Father, as, you're, as you say in Proverbs 22, 4, the reward of humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. You also say in Psalm 25, 9, he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humbles his way. So, Father, we ask that you teach us how we can be more humble in our relationship with you and our relationship with one another and our relationship with unbelievers. And, God, I just pray, God, that you give us, give us as PBC a heart of humility. Not only do we pray for PBC this morning, we also pray for our kingdom partner, Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. God, we are so thankful for this um, body of believers, God, who decided, who decided to start a seminary that is affordable, that allows many uh, men and women to be trained 
for the gospel and, and to take the gospel to the ends of the world. God, I'm specifically thankful for PBC this morning that we had a uh, partner with them so that guys such as Sam and myself can attend classes at a very reasonable rate. So, Father, I pray, God, that you bless this seminary, that you bless the, the leadership. God, I know that they just moved into a new building, so, God, I pray that you bless that. And, God, I pray, God, that you bless each and every single person who is trained, and may they go out with the gospel and, and, and to seek to evangelize the laws with your word and everything that they, that they have learned at this seminary. Father, not only do we pray for a kingdom partner, God, this morning, we pray also for the USA, and we pray for our military this morning, Father. God, as we come up on the 4th of July, God, we, are, we remember those who have given their life and sacrifice for the sake of the freedom that we have. So, Father, I pray for each branch of our service this morning, God. God, I pray for your blessing upon each and every single soldier, Father. God, what a, what a uh, sacrifice that they make to serve our country in the various ways that they do. God, they, they sacrificed time with their family and with their friends. And some of them have even sacrificed their life, God, so that we may freely gather as we do today. So, Father, I pray, God, that you bless our military, that you bless the leaders. God, I pray that you um, just enable them, give them strength to do what they need to do in order to defend our country and our freedom. And lastly, Father, we pray for our world this morning. God, we pray for the, the nation of Malaysia. God, this, this nation has roughly 33 million people and only roughly 3 million are Christians. God, the dominant religion of Malaysia is Islam. And Father, it is a crime to be a Christian in Malaysia. Father, to, 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 claim, to, to claim Christ as their king and as their Lord God is a death sentence for many of them. Father, to be a Christian means that they have to register with the government as a Christian, and because of that, they are limited in their income. They're limited in what they can do and stores they can enter. So, Father, we pray for, for laws to be loosened in that area. But, Father, if not, we pray for bold believers. God, we pray for people to be sent to Malaysia to evangelize the laws boldly, no matter what cause it may cost them ultimately in the end. So, Father, we pray, God, for the churches in that area that you strengthen them as they meet underground. We pray, God, that, that you protect them as they gather for services this morning. God, we pray that for, for the pastors in that area, God, we pray that you give them boldness to proclaim your word unashamed. God, we pray that you allow them to evangelize the lost, to encourage the believers, and to edify your saints there. Now, Father, as we come to um, our sermon, Father, I pray, God, for myself. I pray that you give me the words to speak. May you remove any, any distracting thoughts from my mind, and may you get glory out of everything that I say this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. That's not fair. That's a statement many of you have probably heard. I know my wife being a teacher, she probably heard that a lot. If you're a teacher, you know, as you, as you ask your students to gather in a line, and someone gets to be at the front of the line, someone will, will, will scream out, that's not fair they get to be first in line. Or maybe that co-worker gets a promotion that you wanted, and so upon hearing the good news that your co-worker got the promotion over you, you mentally say to yourself, that's not fair. I deserve that promotion. 
Or maybe you were like me this past Sunday. My family and I took a trip to D.C. And Sunday, we're, we're at the breakfast area. And I walk over to the waffle iron, and I pour my waffle batter into the waffle iron. I turn it upside down when it starts the timer. I step away for a moment, and I go to fix other items. I take those items back to my, to my table. I turn around, and as the waffle iron is about to be finished with these delicious fluffy waffles, a woman walks up, opens the waffle iron, and takes my waffles. Oh. <laughs> now, I can admit with all honesty, and you can ask my wife that I was not pleased at this woman. <laughs> and mentally in my head, I'm saying, this is not fair. I fixed those waffles. I waited three minutes for those waffles. And now I have to wait longer for me to enjoy my waffles. And to add insult to injury, this woman, who we will call waffle thief, <laughs> sets sits at the table directly beside us, and I have to see her eat my waffles as I wait for my other waffles. The first set of workers in our story today kind of have this same mentality. As the master's given out the pay for the day, and they see that their pay is the exact same as those that came later in the day, they have their it's not fair moment. As we walk through the passage together, and we, as we unpack the truth here this morning, my big idea is here. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. God gives the same eternal life to all who follow Christ, regardless of works. God gives the same eternal life to all who follow Christ, regardless of works. If you were here last week, you know that we've been slowly walking through the Gospel of Matthew. And last week in the preceding verses, Hobson told us that, um, reminded us that we are totally sinful and that we are totally helpless and salvation is totally worth it. Now this week is a continuation of Jesus' conversation with Peter and the disciples and he decides to answer Peter in a parable. So Jesus opens the story with a man who's a master of the house, and he owns a vineyard, and it was time to harvest the grapes. Now, in the ancient world, you got to remember, they did not have climate-controlled barrel rooms. So when, it, so when it became time to harvest the grapes, it had to be done immediately. Because even one day extra in the hot Middle Eastern sun, the grapes would be ruined, and they could no longer produce the wine that they wanted to. So knowing this, the master of the house goes and he finds some laborers early in the morning. He finds laborers and he, and he says to them, if you come work for me, I'll pay you a denarius for the day. Now, this is significant. This was a lot of money back then. Ordinarily, only full-time employees would earn a wage of a denarius for a day. A denarius a day was the typical pay for a Roman soldier. Laborers like the one in our parable would normally be, prayed, would be hired for a fraction of that. But the thing is this, if they don't work, they can't provide food and they can't provide for their families. This is, more, this is like a temporary job with a really good wage for those who don't have a job. But the master of the, of the house comes along and he looks at him and he says, 
come work for me and I'll pay you like a normal employee. The one thing I want you to see here is that Jesus is magnifying the profound generosity of the master of the house. The master of the house did not have to pay this much money, but he decides to. And a little bit later in the day, he realizes that he needs more workers if he's going to get all of his grapes harvest. So he goes out about the third hour, which was around 9 o'clock, and he finds more laborers. And literally in Greek, when it says the term to find more labor, literally means that they were without work. Now, it wasn't that they were trying to avoid work. It's that they just had not found any way for the, to provide for their families. So the master says, I'll pay you whatever is right. And seeing that he had already offered the pay Daenerys to the first group, they jumped at the opportunity and followed him into the vineyard. And then the master of the house does the same thing around noon and around 3 p.m. and around 5 p.m. The master goes to the marketplace and he hires more workers. Even when there was only one hour left in the day, he was still willing to be generous and hire the worker, knowing he was going to pay them the full denarius at the time. Finally, payday comes. The end of the day is done. They, they've harvested the grapes. The foreman, the master tells the, the person who's going to give out the pay to go and give, start handing out the wages, and he starts with those who started last, and he works his way up to those who started first. Those that started working first thing in the morning saw that they were getting a full denarius for their partial, partial day of work. Now, no doubt they were thinking to themselves, if the master is giving them a denarius, maybe he's going to give us more because we deserve it. We have worked more than those who started last. But when it gets their turn, they receive the exact same amount of pay, the denarius, and they begin to grumble. And they say to him, what do you mean? These guys have worked an hour and we've been here all day. We've been suffering in this heat longer than they have. We are more dirtier than they have. We have worked more. So because of that, we believe that we deserve more. And listen to the master's response. He says, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for Daenerys? Now, is the master right in giving a Daenerys? Yes, because that's what they agreed to at the very beginning of the day. There was no stipulation. You work for the day, you get a Daenerys. There was no set time frame. And the master point out, points out to the laborers, I didn't do anything wrong. You agreed for Daenerys, that's what you're doing. Take it. In other words, are you jealous that I give to others the same that I give to you? Why does it bother you so much that I choose to be generous with my, with, 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 my, with my money that I'm paying you what I agreed to pay you, and I'm also showing that same generosity to those who started later in the day. And finally, Jesus concludes his parable with a proverb, so the last will be first and the first last. And this proverb is somewhat of a riddle. So what is, what is Jesus trying to say here? What does he mean when he says the first will be last and the last first? Jesus is making a statement of fact. He is saying that those, that those that are first are last and those who are last are first. So think of it like this. Imagine a foot race. The only way for the first to be last and the last first is if everyone in the race finishes 
at the same time. If every single runner finishes the race simultaneously, then the one who finished first also finishes last and vice versa. So you have a dead heat in the race. This is the point that Jesus is making in this parable, that those who were hired first and that those who were hired last all receive the exact same pay. They get the full benefit of the master's generosity. And here, here is where we see the main point of this parable, that God gives the same eternal life to all those who follow Jesus. It doesn't matter if you have been a faithful follower for the last 80 years or if you stumbled on your very last week of, of, on earth and God saved you, you are equal. That is why Jesus makes it a point that the master goes out at, at, at early morning and at noon and at three and at five and he's looking for more and more laborers and he's paying them the same. Their wages was based on his grace and his generosity not the amount of work that was completed. So a couple of things to point out, and then we'll get into our, the meat of our, our, our sermon. The master in this story represents God. The vineyard represents God's kingdom where he reigns. The laborers represent Christians. The day that the amount of time that they work represent their lifetime. And evening, which is pay time, is eternity where we all stand before Christ to give an account for the life we live. And in the nearest, the pay is eternal life. No matter how hard anyone labors or no matter how much we do for the Lord, we are given eternal life by God's grace alone. In the kingdom of heaven, there is no hierarchy. We are all on the same equal playing field. The master goes and he finds the laborers. Remember how the parable started. Peter reminded Jesus how the disciples had left everything to follow him. And they asked him, how will we be rewarded for this commitment to you, Jesus? And Jesus' parable reminds his disciples that it is not about how much they are honored for their faithfulness to Christ. What matters is God's glory for giving grace in the first place. So Jesus' parable teaches three things this morning. The first one is that God saves sinners unconditionally. God saves sinners unconditionally. Christian, it is only by the grace and goodness of God that he has chosen to save you. There is nothing in you that stood out that God said, I must save that person. The Bible says that, that there's nothing good in us, that we are all evil. But parables like this challenge us in, 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 our, in how we operate in our relationship to God. Because some of us, if we're honest, would say this. Well, if I do this amount of good works, so God should love me. If I do this amount of good works, God should love me. Now remember that in our passage, that all the laborers were given the same amount no matter if they work all day or if they work one hour. The master was generous to give them each a denarius, just like God is generous in saving us. Those, that were, those hired first believed that they were owed more than a denarius because they put in more work or 
in the layman's terms, in Christianity terms, they were more faithful at the end of the day. If we're not careful, we too can be this way. We can think that God should bless us because of our works, or we can think that we are better than other Christians around us because of our abilities, our talents, our money, etc. And as we learned last week, we are all on the same field when it comes to our need for a great Savior because we are all sinners. The famous verse, Romans 3.23, is, is still true today, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All the workers had one thing in common. They were in need of work. All of us have one thing in common, is that we are all sinners and have not met the standard by which God has established. Not only are we all sinners, the Bible goes further and says that we all deserve death for our sins. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. The paycheck we deserve is not a Daenerys. The paycheck we deserve is death. And it's not meaning the death of, of being buried in the grave. It's being eternally separated from God. Remember, the workers are upset about wages because they thought that they deserved more. Because of this, the unmerited grace that Jesus describes in this parable has something to say to both of us. Because some of us, if we're honest, we get proud in our salvation sometimes, like those hired in the first hour of the day. And then there's, there's some of you this morning who may be discouraged about your, your worthiness of grace like those hired in the last hour of the day. So first, let me speak to those of you who may be feeling proud this morning about your salvation. Jesus' main point of emphasis in this story is to encourage his disciples to not set themselves up as the standard that all Christians must meet. Think about how discouraging it is when we hear of people, let's say, like, 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 like people we see on TV, and we see that they fall in sin, or maybe when they pass away, their life that they preached and, and taught and lived was not equal to the Christian life. It's devastating. And the problem, the problem is because we place people on pedestals that they, don't, that, that they do not deserve to be on. We can easily have the same heart of pride believing that we deserve God's love and mercy because of what we've done. Who would not want us on their team? I mean, in reality, we're all great, right? We all have something to offer God. Just like the laborers, we can think, why in the world would God choose to say, fill in the blank? Remember the story of Jonah? That was Jonah's biggest gripe. God, why are you sending me to these people? They don't deserve you. And God quickly reminded Jonah that his grace is for everyone. In our, in our own hearts, if we're not careful, we make ourselves as the standard to which someone should live. When in reality, the standard is Christ, not us. We should point people to God and to his goodness and to his mercy and his grace because we are still sinners. We, we are going to fail people miserably. Even now, you may be thinking to yourself, we're glad that that's not me. But hold up. 
Do you ever talk down to your spouse thinking to yourself, well, if they only read their Bible as much as I do, then our marriage wouldn't have this many problems. What is frightening is that, is that I've heard a few giggles, but in reality, we've all been there. We've all had that same kind of attitude. Like if someone comes to you struggling with sin, you're like, well, if you were only as good as a Christian as I am, you wouldn't struggle with that sin. So let me help you. That's not how it works. In a, way, when, when, in a way, when we have this mindset, we think that we deserve God's grace because he owes it to us for our faithfulness. When in reality, it's not our faithfulness, it's his faithfulness, which is what saves us. Or maybe there is someone in this church this morning whom you and your spouse gossip, got, would gossip about on the way home, tearing them down and tearing down their walk for Christ. Guys, if we're not careful, we too can fall into these categories. We have, to humbly, we have to humbly ask God to reveal our hearts to ourselves. This reveals that we may have a heart that is more drawn to the law as the basis for our salvation than God's grace in Christ. We use our obedience to God's law and in other good works as the basis for our righteousness, which is put in our faith in a false gospel. For God, has done the, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin and the flesh in order that the righteousness requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the flesh, but not, but, but not according to the flesh, but according to the experience. Brother, sister, friend, let me say this this morning. Your obedience to the law can never save you. Your obedience to the law can never save you. Paul said that the law could not bring salvation to anyone. The only thing that saves us is that God became a man in Jesus Christ and lived in perfect obedience to it. And he did that not for his sake, but he did that for our sake. You are saved by Christ's obedience and his obedience alone, not your own. To celebrate the grace of God by giving up your attempts to first earn God's love and instead see the richness of his love for you in Christ. This morning in the Sunday school, we talked about the doctrine that God is good. And um, one point I made was that if you ever doubt the goodness of God, look to Jesus on the cross. That is the ultimate display of God's goodness to us. When we treat our salvation as God, you owe me, this cheapens God's glory and grace. The reason that the gospel is so amazing is because it did something that was impossible with man, but was possible with God. Through the gospel, the dead are made alive, enemies are transformed into sons, and daughters and sinners are declared righteous in Jesus Christ. God's grace answers our pride in our works and our trust in them for our salvation by showing us the true gospel proclaims that our true righteousness is salvation by showing us the true gospel proclaims that our true righteousness is found in Christ alone. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like, I don't feel like God deserves me. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I don't feel proud, but I don't feel like I'm worthy 
of what Christ has done for us. Think about the, the, those who were, who, who were hired at 5 p.m. I'm sure when they received that Daenerys, they were like, whoa, I don't deserve this. I worked an hour. There were, there were those here this morning who, who you feel like an outsider looking in. Whether you look at God in pride and you say, of course God owes me salvation, or you look at your sin and you declare yourself too unclean, too disobedient to be loved by, loved by God, you are still looking at your works as the basis for your salvation, not by God's grace. Don't look to yourself for salvation. Look to God. Celebrate the grace of God for you looking Celebrating the grace of God looks like you embracing Jesus' promise as he died on the cross. It is finished. It is Christ in justification through faith in his sinless son, that his sinless son's death on the cross and resurrection from the dead that gives us eternal life. So this raises the question, why do we do good works at all then? If all God cares about is whether we put our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, why should we be concerned with doing good works. That would, be, that would be because Christ saves us for good works. It is not enough to just believe in Jesus. It is not enough to just try not to sin, to sin less. It is about following Christ in complete obedience to what he has said for us to do. True salvation, true saving salvation will result in good works and submission to Christ in every single area of your life. If you have not submitted every area of your life to Christ, then salvation probably was not true. When you truly grasp what God has done for you in his son Jesus, it will cause you to turn your complete life over to him. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not the result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2 make it very clear that our salvation is rooted in the grace of God, not in our merits or our works. However, we do have a purpose to do good works. God saved us in order to remove our, our dead, stony heart and replace it with a new heart that loves and desires to worship him. Christian, rest in the work of Christ done for you and I, not your works. So not only do we see that God saves sinners unconditionally in this text this morning, point two, God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Remember how I said that the Daenerys and Jesus' story represented eternal life? In the same way that every laborer in Jesus' story was paid by the master as promised, every Christian, regardless of their works for the Lord, will receive eternal life because God keeps his promise to give grace regardless of our works. You need to hear me in this. The thing that is going to keep you following Jesus faithfully until you die or he returns, is not your ability to keep your own holiness. It is God's grace from beginning to end that gives you salvation. And if you ever question that, look at the thief on the cross. This man had lived a sinful life 
all the way up until the point of being nailed to the cross beside Jesus. And at his dying last breath, he begs for God to save him. In Jesus' response, to, we, we, we should find comfort this morning in Jesus' response to the thief on the cross. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say, no, you got to get off this cross. you got to go live a certain life. No, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. God keeps his promises, and if you are called into his vineyard, then he will give you what is promised because your eternal life is in Christ, not the number or duration of your good works or your life. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the grace of God, now may, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. It is God who keeps us blameless and secures us for the day of salvation. He is the one who helps us endure following Christ our whole life so that we may receive the grace that was promised to us in Jesus. Paul had great confidence in the, in the Lord to accomplish his salvation. That is why Paul reminded the Thessalonians of God's own faithfulness and then gives a guarantee saying he will surely do it. If God says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. The master promised to the nearest to the first set of workers and he, and he went through with that promise by giving a Daenerys. In other words, if you're in Christ, there is no doubt that God is working in your life to grow you in Christ-likeness and preserving your salvation until Christ returns. Now, there are many promises in Scripture that you can go from Genesis to Revelation and find promises of God that he has, he has kept or he is keeping or he will keep. Genesis 3.15, he said that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God promised from Genesis 3 that there was going to be a, a redeemer, a savior who was going to come and he was going to crush the serpent's head. Isaiah 41.10, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Some of y'all this morning are going through great trials. You can hold fast to Isaiah 41. God says, I will never leave you. I am with you. I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to uphold you by my righteous hand. Not by your hand, but by God's righteous hand. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should receive repentance. 1 John, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. There are many promises that we could point out this morning. But I want you to remember this, that the promises you read in Scripture, God will keep. There's nothing you're going to do that, that's going to cause God to not keep what he has said he was going to do. So if Jesus is teaching in this parable that God gives generously grace to all in Christ regardless of their works, then our application from Jesus' parable is this. 
which is point three, God's generosity celebrated. So the application is this, celebrate the generosity of this good God. The blessings of salvation are not measured out in quotas based on your personal achievements, like some kind of point system. Forgiveness is not measured by weighing your good deeds against your sins. The grace of God is not withheld from you if you have sinned too much or too badly. Every single person who enters the kingdom of heaven receives the full abundance of God's grace, mercy, and love. Are you thankful this morning that when you enter heaven, God's going to say, well, because you did this amount of sin, I only love you this much. No, when we enter heaven, we get the full abundance of God's love, the full abundance of his mercy, the full abundance of his grace. So how do we celebrate God's generosity? One way we do this is we rejoice when an unbeliever becomes a believer. The Bible says that the angels in heaven rejoice greatly when salvation has occurred in someone's life. So we as a church should celebrate those kind of things. Next Sunday, we're going to see a baptism of that happening. So, we, so I'd encourage you to be in attendance. And let's cheer loudly when this baptism happens because it's a reflection of what has happened in someone's life. Another blessing of God's generosity is, is the church. I'm not meaning the building. I'm meaning the people here. The, the people that, that we gather with each Sunday, like, like we encourage one another. We, can, we, 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 we point out sin in, in, in each other's lives. But we gather week in and week out to worship God Almighty. Let us not be like Jonah. Let us not look at people and say they don't deserve God's grace. Because when we do that, it, it, it gives us a picture of our own heart. May we seek the salvation of our families and our friends and our co-workers, and may we seek the salvation of those around the world. May we, may, may we give. May we pray more. May we support missionaries. May we, um, may we as, as elders, teach our people how to, how to have gospel conversations. This is of utmost importance for us. We must be people who are seeking out the salvation of those that are lost. So we've seen this morning that God saves sinners unconditionally. We've seen that God keeps his promise. And we see that God's generosity should be celebrated. So I started the sermon this morning and I talked about fairness. We talked about fairness and particularly fairness that we see or that we experience around us. But there was one ultimate act of unfairness. Look at verses 17 through 20. I'm not going to talk a lot about this, but look at what Jesus is saying is about to happen to him. Matthew 20, 17, he says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked flawed and crucified and he will be raised on the third day Jesus tells his disciples that he is going to Jerusalem and that he will be killed why is he being killed Jesus hasn't committed any crime 
And it's not that Jesus did anything wrong. The reason Jesus was being killed was for the sin that you and I have committed. Jesus would die on the cross for our sins. Jesus never sinned once. He, he, he is perfect, but he went to the cross and he bore the weight of our sins on himself and endured the full wrath of the Father. You want to talk about unfairness? That's unfairness. But thanks be to God that that unfairness is what saves us, what gives us salvation. The question is, will you receive this Jesus today? Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you for your word. God, I'm thankful that you saved us unconditionally because God, all that is in us is evil. But Father, because of your goodness, you saw us and saw fit to redeem us through your son. Father, I'm thankful that you keep your promises. And Father, may we rejoice when we see your generosity given to others. So, Father, as we uh, reflect on, on your word this, uh, this moment, Father, if there's someone here this morning who does not have salvation, may this be their day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and join us? As